1: Hi everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Anthony Yoon and he's known as, I love this sort of contrast, America's holistic plastic surgeon. Yes. He is a plastic surgeon, however, he says, listen, we've got to deal with the whole body. That means the person, their spirit, where are they at in their life. Is plastic surgery really the answer or is it really about something else? And he talks about ways that we can take care of our skin, things to look out for, whether it's procedures or in skincare, things that would be good if we were, you know, in our 20s and 30s. What are certain treatments, non-surgical, that are a little more aggressive and effective in our 40s and 50s and beyond? He's written books, he's been on TV, and he really is on a mission to you know, get people to look at their why. And if you are really going to consider plastic surgery and you're going to go for it, I mean, I joke about it. I think about it, you know, as the years go on, I always say like, if my neck falls, um, you know, I'll be looking. But if you are making that very serious decision, what are the questions you should be asking? Who should you be going to? What should their qualifications really be? And just the safest way to approach something that is very serious. We had a great conversation and I hope you enjoy the show. Because you had your own surgery going from high school to college on your jaw. Were you having functional things or was that a cosmetic or a combination?
2: It was really a combination. It was probably some type of genetic abnormality where my jaw grew to these huge proportions. And so, yeah, I mean, I would have trouble eating certain types of food, but mainly it was the cosmetic aspect where it was just so big and it made me feel deformed. So I had surgery uh, between my high school and college years, to set my jaw back and that functionally helped me a lot. But with my self-esteem and my self-image, it was life-changing.
1: You know, I think that's the thing about skin. If you don't have skin issues, it's like we don't realize that we're leading we, we face the world with our skin and our mm-hmm. our face and how hard that can be for so many people. You had another incident, forgive me, is it like the baby and the raccoon where you, know, you had this situation that you then decided, oh, I think this is the field I'm gonna go into because coming from your family, the expectation was, oh, you will be a doctor. And then <laughs> it was just maybe on you to figure out what kind of doctor.
2: Yeah, so I grew up in a very traditional Korean American household where my parents immigrated from Korea. My dad was a physician. And he basically lifted his whole family out of poverty. It was like the classic American dream story. But what he knew was that doctor equals success. And if I was going to be successful, obviously, I had to be a doctor because anything else, I could lose my job and then I could end up on the street and be homeless. You know, it's like there's there's either doctor or there's homeless and there's nothing in between to their understanding but the issue that I had and the reason why I became a plastic surgeon was that I knew I wanted to work with my hands and I, uh, was, I've was i always been really interested in art and things like that, but I also didn't have the personality to be the type of surgeon my dad wanted me to be. Transplant surgeon, neurosurgeon, cardiac surgeon, like that's just not my personality.
1: What is that? What kind of personality does that take? Well, it takes a type of
2: personality where you can go in and it can be a life and death situation. And you thrive on that. And you have to make very split second decisions of whether you do this or you do that and a person's life hangs in the balance. There are people who love being in that position, who thrive on that stress and the excitement. I hated it when I was in my training because it was that fear that I always had that what if I screw this up? I do not want somebody to suffer because I may have made the wrong decision. So there was one day you mentioned that I was a medical student and there was a little baby that was left in a bassinet and the parents went to the bar, leaving the baby in a bassinet with their pet raccoon. And when they came back to to their house, actually to their barn where they lived, after the bar, the raccoon was in the bassinet eating the baby's face. And when that baby was brought to the um, hospital and then into the pediatric ICU, that's when I saw the baby because I was on my pediatric rotation as a medical student. And to see what the plastic surgeons were talking about doing and stuff like that to help reconstruct this baby's face, that really got me started on, on my love of plastic and reconstructive surgery.
1: See, I think that that's a really important point to start with because you really ultimately plastic surgery was for, hey, if, if you were born with some kind of what would be called deformity, that it was an opportunity to fix that. And now, uh, you know, obviously we've turned it into something really, really different. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting as a female, you know, I'm, I'm middle-aged you can see where you go, oh, it's tempting, you know, certain things. But it's also like the the story that never ends. You know, there's a dermatologist here in Los Angeles, uh, Harold Lancer. You might know Harold, right? And he actually he is, yeah. started from people who burn victims. That's yeah. actually how he started. And using lasers to help burns. And then, you know, the better business is is the cosmetic aspect of things, which is, it's just the way it is. And he used to, he said to me when I was very young, he's like, you know, don't start messing with your face cause then you'll have to chase it.
2: Yeah. I mean, plastic surgery and plastic surgeons, traditionally we go through a lot of reconstructive surgery training. And I didn't know that I was gonna uh, specialize in cosmetic plastic surgery until later on in my career. Uh, and that's usually how it goes. The problem is, is that what's happened with plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery specifically is that there's so many doctors now who, and the importance to them is not becoming a physician and treating people and looking at reconstruction and using these reconstructive the techniques and the knowledge to create these cosmetic procedures, they just want to go and make money making boobs bigger, doing facelifts, doing lipo, you know? And so you get doctors from all different walks, whether they start out as an ER doctor, a GYN, a family doctor, and they go into plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, as a way basically to make money. And it has really, really affected our specialty in in terrible, terrible ways.
1: Is there a way to really verify like, hey, this person has had the proper training in this field?
2: Oh, definitely. So the simplest thing is to make sure that they're certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. That is the board that certifies all of us. And if you're, let's say, an ER doctor who is dabbling in plastic surgery, then you won't be certified by that board. Another thing that you can do, though, because some people try to get around and say, "Oh, I'm a board. I'm certified by this board or that board." Is is you want to make sure that your doctor has hospital privileges to perform the operation that you are looking for? Because hospitals will vet the doctors for you. Mm-hmm. So if I apply to a hospital and say, "Hey, look, I want to do cardiac catheterizations," they're not going to let me do that because I have absolutely no training in it. But if I opened up an OR in my office and I convinced you, Gabby, to let me do a cardiac catheterization on you, there literally is no. No law stopping me from doing that, and that's how people get around it. So, American Board of Plastic Surgery and making sure that the doctor has hospital privileges to perform that surgery,
1: right? Because I think a lot of the plastic surgeons do it in office because it is sort of more discreet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like people want to be discreet with these kinds of things, and um, so.
2: But you know, but the but the societies, the real plastic surgery societies, require all board-certified plastic surgeons to have hospital privileges uh, to do that. Otherwise, you cannot be a member of the society, and the main reason why is. Bad things can happen in plastic surgery. You can die from having a breast augmentation, from having lipo or a tummy tuck. And so if you have a complication, you want to make sure your doctor can bring you to a hospital where they can take care of you. If the doctor doesn't have hospital privileges to perform that, you're on your own. You go to the ER and you hope that they're gonna find a good doctor for you.
1: So, you know, now you're at this place where you call you know, your your label is the America's America's holistic plastic surgeon. And you know, I think there's a couple things. Before I really want to draw, dive down into a lot of the things that you talk about, and and I encourage people um, to to go to you know your Instagram, especially in other things, because you give away a lot of content on your YouTube, tons and tons of of content is so you do the right thing, right? Like you're you're a dutiful son, you say okay, I'm going to be a doctor, then you arrive and now you're doing plastic surgery. I've met other uh, plastic surgeons that said. Also, what was happening? Those people were having either difficult times in their life or mental illness, and then they were coming to me and being like, "Give me this and that." And f- for you guys, if you're, con- you know, there's a conscientiousness to it. I think that that part of the practice is, is probably a dance.
2: It is, and there was a, a famous quote from a very famous Beverly Hills plastic surgeon, Dr. Robert Ray, who said, "We're psychiatrists with knives." And there is truth to that. I mean, I turn down about one out of every five or six patients who comes to see me. And quite often as they've got unrealistic expectations, uh, there's a belief that anywhere from one to 10% of plastic surgery patients have some type of bi dysmorphia. And so as a plastic surgeon, it is my job and my duty to try to figure that out and help patients with it. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes people fool us. And sometimes we operate on people that maybe we shouldn't. And I've had that really blow up in my face in the past. Uh, But therein lies the issue. You know, if you're doing these cosmetic procedures, you really want to be very choosy on who you do it on and what you do.
1: You know, someone's maybe going through a divorce, they're whatever age they are, and they come in and they go, hey, I just want to get tuned up and freshened up. You know, does that seem agreeable?
2: You know, I think in the end, it comes down to two things. Uh, Number one, it's up to the patient. The what the patient, you know, the patient's opinion is what means the most. Um, but number two, when I'm doing these procedures, I don't say yes to everything because if I don't feel myself that by doing this procedure I'm going to help somebody look better, okay? And and yes, that ends up being my opinion to an extent. Um, then I'm not, I don't want to do the procedure. So for example, if I'm going to make somebody's lips bigger just because they want me to, but I think they're going to look worse because they're going to look so unnatural, then the answer is I don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's really those two things. The problem that we have now in plastic surgery is that all of that gets mud you know muddied up. You know there are so many spouses who are trying to push their their partners to undergo cosmetic procedures. You know, I see that all the time. Where I had a patient the other day that said, you know, they came in to see me for a mommy makeover, and she says, well, I want my tummy done, but my husband want my wants my breasts bigger. And so I said, well, what do you want? Because I want my tummy done. And I said, well, that's all that really matters here, because your body. Um, but she said, well, let me talk about breast augmentation because I promised him I would, and it's like, oh. So these things, you know, it's easy to say that, but unfortunately people are um, impacted by the, by the influence of others. And sometimes it's not so healthy.
1: Yeah, I know. It is tricky. Uh, I have, a, okay, really, and these are like, this is like my selfish questions um, before I, <laughs> you know, I just get it. You know, I've had friends get liposuction and, you know, I'm a very big advocate. If I go to bed early, I don't drink alcohol, you know, whatever, all the boring stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've had friends get liposuction, but the fat showed up like they got it from the thighs and the butt, and then it showed up later on the arms. Like more kind of fat is, do you think that your body, you sort of are born, the story is right. You're born with a certain amount of fat cells. They're either smaller or larger. And then do they, do they sort of come back and get redistributed? Is that like a, something that we see? Cause I think sometimes people, I don't know, they don't really maybe think about the long
2: yeah, I, you know, I, that's a really good question. And many years ago, there was a very small study that appeared to show that, where if you get lipo on your thighs, it comes back on your arms or another body part. Uh, but since then, there have been much larger studies that have refuted this. You know, and, okay. and liposuction every year is the number one or number two most popular plastic surgery. I mean, I have probably lipoed upwards of 10,000 people in my career. And I have never in all of those had a patient okay. come back and say, geez, you know, look at how huge my forearms are now after you lipoed my, my thighs. Thank God, because, I mean, what a problem that would be. Um, But the difference is, is that if, let's say, you gain weight, okay, you may not gain weight in that problem area that we took down, but maybe you gain it somewhere else. Um, But if your weight is stable, there should be no reason why the fat should just automatically come back in some weird location. Mm I've never actually seen that, honestly.
1: Okay. So I thought, you know, all of us are interested in our, our skin. And, and before we start this too, I want to say that what I, what I appreciate and identify is that you're also, you've also created a business around saying, hey, listen, um, if maybe you want to try to have these good practices, I also create products that I believe in. I believe in the ingredients and I know what's in them. And so I just put that at the table right at the top because sometimes it's like, oh, well, he has products. Yeah, you do. So there you go. I have three daughters. Uh, None of them have really had skin issues. But with teenagers, let's just start there. Is some of it hormones and some of it food allergies? Like in a lot of the cases, if you've got a kid with really persistent um, acne, which is very tough to deal with. What is sort of overall, usually, what are the causes? So
2: I think you're, you're right when you say hormones. I mean, there's a reason why teenagers get acne as they go through puberty. Uh, and it's that combined with the external factors too. So, you know, my recommendation, you know, and I've got, a, I've got two teenage kids right now, and something that we are dealing with with them, uh, the first thing you have to consider is that diet and overall inflammation can make a huge impact on things like acne. Acne is an inflammatory process. So you know so many teenagers, what do they do? They get their car for the first time, they get their driver's license and now they're driving to McDonald's with their friends, they're going out getting pizza, you know they're getting ice cream. all of these things will increase inflammation by sugar spikes. you know these these are things you've covered yeah. in your podcast before yeah. and that can contribute to it. but, we also have to realize that yes, there is a hormonal component to this. There are things too with your skin changing that that using things like salicylic acid washes, a beta hydroxy acid, it can help clean out your pores. Those are things that can help. So, really with somebody who's a teenager dealing with acne, it really is multifactorial, you know? It's not just because they're eating at McDonald's that they have acne. It's not just because of hormones that they have it. It is probably a combination of so many factors and focusing on all of them technically is probably the best way to go. The big thing with with teenagers is if you've got a teenager that's getting cystic acne, I mean, the acne is starting to get severe, you really wanna take that that teenager to a dermatologist because that acne, if it gets out of control, can leave permanent scars. That can be something that people deal with throughout the rest of their lives. And it's best to take care of it earlier rather than later. Worst case scenario, and I don't recommend this, you know, for the majority of people, but Accutane can take care of it for pretty much everybody. And if it comes down to being on Accutane or having horrible cystic acne that creates yeah. scarring for the rest of your life, then you know talk with your dermatologist and really get to the bottom of it. These are things you want to tackle earlier rather than later.
1: And it's super. I mean, it's very very painful as well. Um, let's say someone's hearing this later and they're having some residual uh, scarring. What do you think? Is it laser treatment? What are some of the most effective ways? Because there are some really great things to get that evened out.
2: Yeah, there's a number of things you can try. The problem is, is that none of them are going to erase the acne. All of them, you may get a 10, 20, 30% improvement. So there's a number of different things and none of them have necessarily been proven to be better than the other. You can try a fractional laser or a series of fractional laser treatments. Those will each have downtime of a few days to maybe even up to a week. Uh, doing a series of moderate depth chemical peels. Um, we do something called a controlled depth peel by a uh, Beverly Hills dermatologist, Dr. Zain Obagi. That's great. Uh, even microneedling, microneedling, very inexpensive treatment. You do a series of those for mild acne and that can improve it as well.
1: I love that because I, I just again as a parent, I think you know that's something that you you can you know people can feel helpless and it's really it's a it's a tough one. So you're in your twenties and and we'll we'll get into you know some of the r- rituals and the routines of you know cleansers and others. But I feel like culturally because we've moved into this heavy makeup, social media culture, everything perfect culture, the lips, the fillers, and early. I mean, this stuff is happening early. I mean, Botox for 20-year-olds, whatever. If you said, hey, if to really do some treatments in your 20s that won't have long-term, you know, you won't regret it in 25 or 30 years, but yeah, it might freshen you up and tune you up. What are you liking for, you know, men and women in their, in their 20s or, you know, 30s?
2: Yeah, so for the 20s, really, it's about prevention because you look hopefully your skin looks still youthful you bounce back very quickly so the first thing is always get on a good skincare routine so you want to cleanse every morning you want to apply a good antioxidant serum preferably a vitamin c if you combine it with vitamin e even better and then super important you want to apply a sunscreen after that technically that's all you do in the morning that is fine you don't have to do anything more than that in the evening, so so important, you got to cleanse your skin, okay? Even though you're in your 20s, you go out and party, you leave your makeup on, you wake up the next morning, you still feel great and you look pretty darn good, it is not good for your skin. You got to get rid of the days worth of grime and dirt and pollution off that skin. And then ideally you want to apply either a gentle retinoid, the the term for that is a retinol. You can, you know, the vast majority of major skincare companies have a good retinol in their skincare lines. Or you can try a peptide-based cream uh, that could be more mild if you got real sensitive skin. But if you do have a little bit of residual type of acne, then a good retinoid can be can be very good for your skin. And then, depending on your climate and how your skin is, a moisturizer can be great just to help to you know lock in the moisture to your skin. Technically, that's all you really have to do. Now, if you're talking about in office treatments. You say, "Hey, look, I take care of my skin. I use these products. What can I do in the office that can be helpful?" Uh, intense pulse light or IPL treatments, those are great because those will target the age spots, those sun spots. So if you're out with your friends and you get these spots, it can really help target that. There's no downtime to that. There's really no, you know, negative aspects of it. I am not a fan of prophylactic botox. I know some doctors are. It makes them a lot of money. But doesn't it
1: shorten the muscle? Like, aren't you going to, isn't it going to be a something later that we sort of, like I had a a friend of mine who is a very successful makeup artist. And he Mm -hmm. said he he had a twin brother who did nothing. And he goes through time, all his wrinkles moved to the inside part of his eye, (laughs) <laughs> Good, after like 10 years of Botox.
2: So Botox will weaken muscles temporarily and those muscles can atrophy or they can get smaller, okay? And so what some people find, is, the most common area to inject it is we call the glabella, which are the frown lines between your eyebrows. And what some people do is they can weaken the muscles that create those lines, but then they recruit muscles from elsewhere to try to create that. But that, I find, is usually caused by the actual person staring at themselves in the mirror trying to create those lines, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But the negative really, though, if you're in your 20s of doing Botox is that you can get antibodies to Botox eventually. You can get resistance to Botox eventually. And why use it now when you're in your 20s and you don't need it because you have no wrinkles and then find that when you're in your 40s, it doesn't work anymore because you've been doing it for too long? The crazy thing, Gabby, is that I get patients who are in their 20s who say, oh, you know, when I turn 40, I'm going to be old. I won't care how I look. (laughs) And I'm like, what? And people in their 40s go, oh, when I'm 60, I'm going to be old. I won't care how I look. And then I get patients in their 60s. They'll say, oh, when I'm 80, I won't care. You always care. If you care, you're always going to care.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's part of it. So really... uh you know, more of just a minimal, but a good practice. You talk about that toner is, is almost, I don't want to say optional, but if like you don't have anything kind of heavy duty going on with your skin, Mm -hmm. that it's optional. Cause I I love this idea of that your skin has a microbiome itself and that that can be sort of disruptive to that. Can we just, cause people are familiar now, like, okay, you have your gut health microbiome, try to get that all dialed in, but your skin has its own as well.
2: Yeah, and that's true. And so, you know, back in the day, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was all about astringents and you apply this alcohol-based astringent to your face and it feels cool. Like if you got rubbing alcohol on your face and then it feels squeaky clean, and then it feels dry. And then the crazy thing is you get really oily because now your your skin says, geez, it's so dry, let's amp up the oil amount. So the first thing you wanna do is avoid any any type of a toner with alcohol in it because it just is not good for your skin. There are a lot of non-alcohol based toners now uh, that help to restore the pH of your skin. So if you're using a real harsh cleanser, then using something like that can be okay. But you just like you said, you want to avoid something like one skin alcohol based toners where you're going to strip that microbiome, kill that bacteria off. That bacteria can be very beneficial for your skin.
1: And I think it's, well, how do you feel about um, oils over creams? Um, I, I know, you know, for example, you discussed like, hey, don't use the cream for your body, for your face, because it can really clog the pores. But, yeah. you know, a lot of times I will use certain oils. And I'll actually, and I'm older, obviously, so my skin isn't as, but I, it's not as sensitive. But I sort of sometimes like that over a cream. Do you? How do you feel about using an oil on your face? I think that's fine,
2: and a lot of people are using it. A lot of people are getting more, you know, back to kind of the the natural. They want to avoid a lot of the additives and you know, and uh, preservatives that are found in skincare products. Um, where oils can actually be really helpful too is in people who have actually oily skin, believe it or not, that a lot of people will start with an oil-based cleanser because it tends to get rid of makeup for some people really, really well. Um, so if you've got any people who are listening and they've got real oily skin, even acne-prone skin, it doesn't seem to make sense, but using an oil-based cleanser followed by a gentle cleanser can really, really help with the skin.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. When I was a
1: teenager, it was the early '80s, and we had a brutal product called. Uh, it was like an apricot facial scrub with huge granules, right? And you would yeah. get in there and scrub because you think, "Oh, I'm going to avoid uh, blemishes." But that also, I think people have to be careful with really chunky, uh, you know, scrubs on their face because you can kind of damage the skin, right?
2: Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of people that find that, especially as they get older. I get so many messages from people who are uh, have mature skin and. And they're applying so many products on it. They've got adult acne and they go, well, what product do I need to apply onto my skin to make it better? Or do I need to scrub my skin more to make it better? And the the solution a lot of times is to do the opposite, is to dial everything back, get back to those basics. Because we are in general, applying too many products onto our skin. Just stay with that cleanser, stay with the the serum, the uh, vitamin C serum in the morning and the light sunscreen. And then at night you want to wash, you want to use a retinoid. And then if you want to apply moisturizer, if you need it, go ahead. But really for a lot of people, stripping the skincare back can actually improve their skin.
1: Yeah. And actually drinking more water. You know, that's the funny thing. It's like, we're so busy doing this. It's like, well, just take a look at how's your stress and are you hydrated? Start there. And you really can see it on your skin. Um, I did experiment with microdermabrasion in my late 20s, you know, kind of get up, you know, I used to call it get sandblasted because yeah. I was always sweaty and sunblocky. And I, I felt like so far it's been many years that hasn't that's worked out pretty good.
2: Yeah. And that's a treatment where essentially you blast tiny little crystals at your skin. Uh, and typically we were actually, they were using baking soda after a while with that. Cause it was natural, but it used to be ammonium type crystals or not. Uh, yeah, it was aluminum crystals. Uh, and then people were concerned about the safety of that. So they switched to baking soda and essentially it's a light exfoliation of the skin. That's always good because when you exfoliate your skin, you get rid of that upper layer of dead skin cells and it causes your skin to actually turn over more quickly and to actually get more youthful just by doing that. So regular exfoliation whether you're using like you know a, a gentle scrub like that not with a big crazy thick granules, but a gentle scrub or a lot of chemical exfoliants that you can get easily, you know, over the counter in the drugstore, that can really help with the skin and, and smoothing it out.
1: And, and we're going to just say that this is pretty much across the board for men and for women, these treatments. I mean, skin is yeah. skin. Men have thicker skin. Um, you know, I think they have a bonus of if they shave, they're all, kind of always exfoliating a little bit. That is true. Um, but um, so you're in your 30s or, and maybe 40s. What sort of treatments are more appropriate, maybe they're a little more rigorous if you were gonna go and sort of say, hey, I wanna, I need to stay on top of this.
2: Yeah, so if we're looking at skincare, it'd be doing the same thing we talked about before, but definitely adding the retinol then. And if you wanna take another step Add a peptide on top of the retinol if you really being um, want to be active and aggressive with the skincare. If you're looking at treatments, no question the IPL is something that I would recommend. If you want to take the next step after that, something super easy and actually very natural is microneedling. Microneedling, basically, you know, a lot of people think about that as the um, uh, the rollers, the little needle rollers. That's kind of how it started, but now we use actual automated microneedling devices in the office, where it can get, where we make these tiny little puncture wounds into the skin, creating trauma, and then we take your blood, we spin it down, remove the platelets, which are chock full of growth factors. That, turn, that basically is called PRP, platelet-rich plasma. Apply that to the surface of your skin. That platelet-rich plasma, those growth factors will then seep into those tiny little holes that are created by the microneedling device and help to rejuvenate your skin from the inside out. And this is a very classic case of regenerative medicine, using your body's own regenerative properties to help rejuvenate itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've tried that, and you know, you look a little kind of beat up, maybe the when you go home that day, and maybe a little bit the next day. Everyone's different, but I I think it's good, and and they say right, the results on that takes just a little bit of time, like it sort of shows up.
2: Yeah. And the good thing about that over, let's say, laser treatments is that these devices are not that expensive for doctors to buy. So you may do, let's say, a laser treatment. You know, these lasers cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for physicians to purchase. And so that cost ends off getting passed off onto you. So if you are a savvy consumer and you say, look, you know, I'm really saving my money to get these treatments. What are good bangs for my buck? Then microneedling is good because those microneedling devices are not that expensive for us to buy. Chemical peels are another option, a relatively inexpensive option to help rejuvenate the skin without spending thousands and thousands of dollars.
1: There's always these conversations around like, oh, when is the right time if someone's going to get a facelift? Because you'll hear even hey, is it earlier? Is it in your 50s before all your collagen really starts to go? Before Actually, before we get to that, is there a stage? And, and you do talk about some things that are a little more rigorous, even the microneedling, isn't there something you can do with it? like? Or you talk about fractional lasers and, and some radio frequency. So maybe we go to skin that's just a little older and sort of say, hey, we're not at the facelift place, but we're starting to notice stuff.
2: Yeah. So this is where there are some minimally invasive treatments that can definitely help. So for example, we talked about microneedling, but there's also microneedling with radiofrequency and the name is Morpheus. And this is a procedure basically where you make those tiny little pokes with the device, but when it makes the pokes, it releases a type of uh, energy like heat to create heat in the deeper skin. So not only do you get the benefit of that that trauma from the actual poke, causing the collagen to renature and get tighter, but you create heat into the deeper skin, which can cause the skin to tighten as well. This is a bit more expensive because now you're using a a device that can be fairly expensive to purchase. You do look at potentially a couple of days of downtime, but the risks are fairly low. It's usually very well tolerated. Usually you need a topical numbing cream to help with that. uh, And that would be the next step from there. The problem is, is after that, there just isn't a really good option between that, which is still pretty non-invasive, to surgery, to doing an actual facelift. There have been things that we have tried, like Mm -hmm. laser lipo and things like that under the surface of the skin to try to get tightening of sagging skin. But you get to a point where you start wasting your money doing a lot of these things. And if they're not going to give you the result you want, then that's when you look at surgery.
1: Right. And you like also, um, is it Ultherapy, I believe?
2: Yeah. So all therapy is a non-invasive treatment that if you're looking at completely non-invasive, it's probably the right. best thing we have out there right now for skin tightening. That being said, it's still not great. Okay. If you look mm-hmm. on realsoft.com, the satisfaction rate is not I don't think it's anywhere near 90%. And so you got to consider it's a quite painful procedure. It uses ultrasound energy to heat the deep skin. So it bypasses the surface of the skin, uses ultrasound to heat the deep skin to try to get the skin to contract. The problem with this treatment is you can't numb the area up because if you put numbing on the surface of the skin, it only numbs the surface, but the heat isn't in the surface, it's deep down. So it can be quite painful. And what I found with it is the results vary. There's some people who seem to get a pretty good result and other people who go through the whole painful process and get very little out of it.
1: Think about if you saw yourself in 20 years, you'd think how great you looked right now. You know, it's like this reminder of constantly trying to appreciate wherever we are. Um, But cellulite is always something that, you know, is some of it's genetic and then you can, you know, obviously help lifestyle and that's an inflammatory sort of signal i mean ultimately does anything really work on cellulite so the
2: answer is yes i mean the issue with cellulite is over 90 percent of women have it and only like 10 percent of men so it's so not fair and yes it's true you know if you retain fluid if you've got a lot of inflammation if you're eating a lot of salty fried fast food type stuff then your cellulite is definitely going to be worse because you're going to retain that fluid and stuff um, there are a lot of treatments that can temporarily improve cellulite, anything from the old-fashioned endermology to, you know, we've got one called BodyFX. And these are all temporary solutions. They all kind of work in similar ways. You massage the surface of skin really aggressively uh, and you create heat into the deeper skin to try to get things to kind of those fibrous bands that create the dimpling to stretch out. Mm-hmm. There are a few things out there now that are interesting interesting treatments but they're not a panacea they're not going to you know be the cure for it there's an injection now called quo it was FDA approved this spring where you can inject into those fibrous bands to actually release those bands it, it contains means- what's that one yes.
1: scares me. Doesn't that scare you? That one. Tell me about this one. So it
2: contains something called a collagenase, where it actually breaks down the the collagen in those fibrous bands to release them. It definitely works. The problem with it is it takes three treatments. Okay, you space them about a month apart, and you get and and the same product that actually then um, disrupts those collagen bands also causes the tiny little veins to leak out blood. So you get terrible bruising afterwards. This is not something that you start doing in the spring that you want to look good for summer because that bruising can last quite a while. Uh, but it definitely works. You know, it's for if you've got some deep dimples of cellulite that you want to improve. This is a great option. Do it in the fall or the winter when you're not showing these areas off. Um, there's some other types of treatments that are so-so. One called Cellfina, which basically is surgical, but it's like a little blade that goes under the surface of the skin that kind of cuts those bands. And there's a laser that does something very similar too.
1: But what, So okay, so, you know, it's it's sort of like, oh, I took that tooth out. In a way, it's like we cut those bands, but what are the bands for? And then what happens after?
2: Yeah, I mean, the bands basically don't serve any true purpose. You know, there's no signs to show that that would cause a problem. But at the same time, you know, if you have bad health, then that cellulite's gonna continue to be, you know, come back. And it's gonna continue to be potentially an issue because once again, you're getting that, ups and downs of retaining fluid and that inflammation, you know, ideally, yes, doing all the things that you talk about on the podcast with eating a clean diet, exercising regularly, even getting regular massages, those types of things can help. Dry brushing, some people find that that can minorly help with their cellulite too.
1: Listen, doc, we all dry brush with like a hope and a wish, right? Like, okay, (laughs) towards the lymphatic, uh, you know, system. Um, I also will say this, I do... um, a, a, a quite a bit of heat and ice, and mm-hmm. when I do icing more often, the cellul- my the appearance of my cellulite improves, and I'm not exactly sure why. They say maybe there's a hormone regulator in there, but also I'm I almost feel like the skin reacts to the ice. Yeah. Oh um, yeah.
2: Yeah. And you get vasoconstriction, and you, yeah, no no question. You know, I mean, it's the same thing when you put. Um, cold cucumbers over your eyes and the swelling comes down and and your eyes look a little bit better. But uh, unfortunately it is temporary, but hey, it it helps for a while. Some people (laughs) even put like coffee grounds on their areas of cellulite because of caffeine. And there are caffeine containing creams that you can buy that can temporarily improve the appearance of cellulite.
1: You're, you know you talked about sunblock putting that on. The thing that's scary about sunblock for a lot of you know of, of us is if you, if you absorb it the, a lot of it. So you really talk about one that the molecule is a little bit thicker so you, your body doesn't really absorb it but it's actually some protection.
2: Yeah so you know you know all about this because you've dealt with this for all your life. Um, so there, there's a couple of things you've got to look at it there's chemical sunscreens and there's physical sunblocks, okay? Chemical sunscreens are certain chemicals that are absorbed into your skin, and via a chemical process, they can help protect your skin from getting burned, from the UVA, UVB. So ideally, you wanna get broad spectrum over SPF 30. Physical sunblocks are zinc oxide and titanium dioxide that are meant to stay on the surface of your skin and block the rays from getting in there. The, The easiest way to remember are those old lifeguards back in the 80s who had the white paste on their nose, that's a physical sunblock. For children, physical sunblocks are definitely the way to go because there's no sign that that should impact their hormones or anything like that that's not absorbed into the bloodstream. The problem with physical sunblocks is that they can leave a whitish hue behind. Your kids aren't going to care, okay? But you might care if you're wearing that, especially if you have darker skin. Now, they micronize these, which can help reduce it, but you can still have it. So what's the solution? What I usually recommend is that if you're going to go out to the beach, then use a, a good um, a physical sunblock, okay? Because if you've got a little white issue, who cares? You know, you're at the beach. But if you've got darker skin, then you can look for a chemical sun sunscreen. Look for avobenzone, okay? The ones you wanna avoid are oxybenzone and octinoxate. Those are the two, oxybenzone and octinoxate that are believed to be hormone disruptors. They do get absorbed into your bloodstream and just as bad, they are known to affect the coral reefs as well. And there are many beaches now in Hawaii, out in Australia where they do not allow you to wear those types of sunscreens.
1: Yeah. And my favorite is like when you see the aerosol can and they're just spraying it on the kid and the kid's like breathing it yeah. in. And it's, you know, it's, I think we don't realize, um, because it's also, it's, it's so, it's yeah. so convenient. You it know, is. It's, it's, so it's so easy. Convenient.
2: But if you're doing that, a simple tip is spray it into your hand and then apply it onto your child. You know, yeah. if you've got it, that's much better. <laughs> you don't want them breathing it in. We don't know what those effects could be in their developing lungs.
1: That's right. So I want to I want to move into your practice of in, internal things because you talk a lot about collagen and vitamin A, C, D, things like that. But just out of curiosity, what's your fa- What are some of your favorite procedures to perform on patients if you are going to do surgery?
2: Yeah, so I do a lot. I do probably you know a complete range of cosmetic surgeries. Uh, so I do a lot of facelifts. Uh, I do a lot of fat injections. I do a lot of breast enhancement, breast lifts. So pretty much the whole spectrum. What I don't do are nose jobs. I just never like doing those. It's just not my thing. Wait, what uh, do you and- mean?
1: Wait, wait, what do you mean? So, you don't like working with the small the small mm, space of the nose, or no rhinoplasty
2: is. So that if you would pick one surgery that has the highest risk of your patient murdering you, okay, it is a male rhinoplasty patient. Rhinoplasty has, the nose for some reason has the highest incidence of BDD. So patients who have dysmorphia, where they look in the mirror, it's a psychiatric condition. They look in the mirror, they see something different than what everybody else sees. Those people who come in for nose jobs have a much higher chance of having BDD than other surgeries that they may come in for. Also, once, like I mentioned earlier, if you're going to get murdered by, by your patient as a plastic surgeon, it's most likely going to be a guy who you did a nose job on because you combine BDD with for some reason being a guy, and that gets dangerous. And I know plastic surgeons who specialize in nose jobs who have loaded guns in their desk at their offices. This is not an exaggeration because people can really get very upset when they're not happy with their results. So I never really enjoyed the surgery. I think it stressed me out a little bit because I've seen so many people with botched nose jobs that are really, really hard to fix. And so early on in my career, you know, I actually did it, now that I think about it, I did it for about 10 years, I did nose jobs. I think I did a really nice job, but every single one, I hated doing it. Like when you um, uncover
1: the moment, the, the unveiling, it's just, you know.
2: And, and my patients are real happy, but there was always that stress in me that I'm going to get this great result and they're going to be unhappy. And then what no. am I going to do? You know? And so, so I stopped doing them, but you know, there are doctors so who just love the challenge. I'm okay without the challenge. <laughs>
1: And there's a a variety of kinds of facelifts, right? There's like a lower, a half. Can you you maybe just uh, explain? Because I I think, you know, when people think about this, they don't always know what's available to them.
2: Yeah, so the term facelift is really a bad term because you think facelift, you think the whole face. Um, But as plastic surgeons, we actually divide the face into thirds. So there's the forehead and the eyebrows, which is the upper face. And for that, you lift that with a brow lift or a forehead lift. There's the mid face, which essentially are your cheeks. And so there are mid face lifts. And there's a lower face, which a lower face, which is literally everything kind of mid-cheek down, including the upper neck. That's technically what a facelift treats. So some people say, "Oh, I want a full facelift." Well, a full facelift still is a lower face and an upper neck lift. That's really what it treats. It really doesn't do a whole lot for the cheeks, and it definitely doesn't do anything for the forehead or the eyebrows.
1: It's in, it seems interesting though that someone would come in and just get one of them.
2: Oh no, actually, because our face does not age proportionally in everybody. So I get patients who come in and and their forehead, are, you know, their brows are in great position. They have very little extra skin. They don't have bags under their eyes, but they've got big jowls. You know, yeah. we see that all the time. Or the opposite, they may have a nice sharp jawline, but their eyebrows are really low and they feel that they look really grumpy, okay? And so it really is tailoring it. Now, there are some people who have aged in all three areas, um, but it's very common that one area just seems to have aged worse than others. And usually the part that has aged the worst is the lower face and the upper neck.
1: Uh, Oh, absolutely. And do you think it's enhanced by being on the phone and being in that shortened position? I mean, do you think that that's accelerated everybody kind of you know, pushing down and being in that position? I think it could a little
2: bit, but I also think that that's a, a bit of a, you know, PR type of thing of, oh, look, it's tech neck. They call it tech neck. And it's a way to get articles out there and, and have your and a plastic surgeon, have your name out there. Um, you know, we do think that the blue light emitting from our devices also can be aging as well as that can impact your circadian rhythms. So, you know, is there something to tech neck? maybe a little bit? I think there's probably more to blue light and, and a lot of the other negative impacts that we have by being on our devices so much.
1: What's the, if you said to, if you said, okay, I would write a general prescription with, you know, let's say a window of eight to 10 years when you'd say to someone, okay, you're, you're doing all the right things. You're taking care of yourself. You're, you're sort of doing what you can be in charge of. Here's what a perfect scenario would look like as far as age coming to you for something like um a facelift because i think you know you hear all stories like oh don't do it too late don't do it too early all these things
2: yeah i think it's real straightforward so i mean i do about a facelift a week this is a very popular surgery but i tell my patients that the time to do a facelift should be very straightforward when you hate the appearance of your jowls your lower face and your neck so much that you're going to spend upwards of 12 to fifteen thousand dollars You're going to go under the knife for three to four hours. You're going to get permanent scarring around your ears that might or might not get thick. You're going to spend the night overnight in a hospital, okay, where I do the surgery, spend the night overnight. You're going to have drains overnight, and you have the potential risk of complications. But you hate your neck and your jawline so much that that sounds exciting to you, then that might be the right time to do a facelift. Okay, and so a lot of it, really, you know, once you hit about fifty-five, almost everybody, uh, unless you're maybe, geez, Jennifer Lopez, anybody over fifty-five is physically usually a probably a reasonable candidate for a facelift. The vast majority of people. Then it just comes down to whether it's the right thing for you. Right. And that's putting that into account. You know, when you hate that so much that all of those things are fine because man, you really, really want to take care of this. Then you may, then it may be the right time.
1: And then what about, you know, with breast augmentation, if someone has never had one, um, are you doing any of the, you know, fat transfer? And I know they don't guarantee it maybe go up a cup size, things like that. Are there ways for people to do it without actually putting an implant in that you see some success with?
2: So that's really interesting because a fat transfer to the breast, studies have looked at that and it physically is a very safe operation. You take fat from your tummy or your thighs, you purify the fat, inject it into the breast and the risks of a complication of that is fairly low. About 30 to 50% of that fat will stay. So usually you may gain at the most, maybe a cup size, maybe half a cup, but what they don't talk about, and this is something that, you know, when people ask me about, oh, you know, you're so against, you know, or, or I talk a lot about breast implant illness, well, why don't I just use fat then? The thing we're learning is that fat is chock full of stem cells, okay? This is something we've learned about in the last seven to 10 years. We know that one in nine women will get breast cancer in their lifetime. And so our breast glandular tissue is cancer prone, unfortunately. What happens if you take a a relatively cancer prone organ and you infuse it with stem cells? If you've got, let's say, a little, a a cluster of atypical cells that are growing there that, you know, you're, let's say, 40 years old, and those aren't going to grow into a tumor until you turn 120, you may never see that, okay? But what if you've got a bunch of stem cells by fat that was injected all around that? Could that impact you? Could that tumor now show up in 10 or 15 years? We don't have studies to show that that's going to be safe and that that doesn't happen. And so for that reason, I'm not a huge fan of injecting fat as a cosmetic procedure. I have used it in reconstructive types of things at times, Um, but but that's something I talk to all my patients about that I think a lot of doctors are not talking to their patients about it because they go, oh, look, it's a safe operation. My complication rate's really low. But is that patient going to have breast cancer 20 years from now? Do we know that?
1: Yeah, that's the conversation even when you talk about like a growth hormone and things. It's like that's mm-hmm. that multiplier if you will. Um so that that's interesting and how often do you think if women do have um implants if they need to to sort of change them out if they don't if they're not having any weird, you know, encapsulated or mm-hmm. anything like that? So
2: you know what we what we do know is it's much easier to switch them out before they break rather than after. And we know that they do get, you know, more and more brittle as time goes on and now the implants typically have a 10-year warranty so they should last you a minimum of 10 years and any doctor that's telling you you have to switch it out every 10 years is wrong. Mm. They can last you much longer. So what I usually tell my patients is every 15 to 20 years or so consider switching them out prophylactically when it's a good time for you, okay? Because that operation, if the breasts have healed well, if the pocket and the scar tissue is nice, that operation can take literally a half hour with almost no recovery time. But if that implant breaks and the pocket shrinks down, now we got to reopen the pocket completely. Uh, Again, you have a higher risk of complications, a longer operation. Best to do it easier if you can, but you don't have to do it every 10 years. I think that's way, way excessive.
1: And how do you know if you go, you know, through the nipple or underneath the breast? And in the old days, they went through the armpits. Like, what it, what is your preference, or you find it be, or is it just case by case for body and shape?
2: Well, I typically go under the breast now because there are studies that are showing that if you make the incision around the areola or in the armpit, there's a higher risk of complications. These are studies that have just come out in the last five years or so, uh, and more and more people are abandoning those options because of that. And so for me, I used to offer all three approaches around the areola, armpit, or underneath the breast. Now I tell all my patients in the beginning, this is why I recommend go under the breast, a lower complication rate that makes it worth it.
1: Do, do we think um, butt implants are, are here to stay? Well, butt implants are the only
2: option for people who want a big derriere and they don't have fat to use. Uh, BBL, which is fat injections into the buttocks, are much more popular, but they're also potentially dangerous. Several years ago, there was a survey that found that one in 3,000 patients undergoing BBL, butt fat injections, died from the operation. There have been further studies now after some of these techniques have been refined, and that death rate is now down to about one in 15,000 which still isn't great, but it's much better than one in 3,000. So the big key for that is to make sure if you're going to have it done, you want to see somebody who is an expert at that surgery. You don't want somebody dabbling in that operation to do it because you could literally die within seconds of having this operation. It is that serious.
1: Yeah, I mean you hear stories of like people putting really unusual things in those <laughs> yeah. injections. It's like holy cow. So let's move over because this is this is also one of the things I really appreciate about what you talk about and I and I love the title America's Holistic Plastic Surgeon. God, you know, you talk about supplements, protein and calcium and iron and vitamin C. And, you know, you sort of said, hey, we've we looked at 70 different types of diets and, you know, we're sort of low in these things. Maybe you could just go through the supplements that you feel are also supportive. Ultimately, I think we, forget, we try to always piecemeal our whole organism apart. But if you're taking things that support the organism, your skin's going to look better. I mean, I know that we yeah. focus on the skin, but it's sort of like if your mitochondria, your cells, everything's working better, your microbiome, your skin's going to look better.
2: Yeah, and exactly, and it's all those things that you've talked about on the podcast, you know, and it's things like eating the rainbow of fruits and vegetables. We know that antioxidants are found in the actual pigment uh, of these fruits and vegetables. So eating a wide variety of different colors can be very, very beneficial for your skin. You talked earlier, you mentioned the microbiome. There are studies now that are looking and finding that the health of your skin can be profoundly impacted by the health of your microbiome. And so I do encourage all my patients to take a probiotic every day, and ideally to eat fermented foods at least a couple of times a week to try to also get those good beneficial bacteria through your food too. You know, you mentioned supplements, but obviously the first thing you always wanna do is is eat a good, balanced, anti-inflammatory, healthy diet because you can't supplement your way out of a bad diet, essentially. But putting that aside, because I know you covered diets so well in your podcast, you know, what supplements that I recommend if you're looking at purely anti-aging and pure, you know, how do you get your skin looking well, uh, taking a good uh, multivitamin, and there's a lot of different ones out there, there are some, If you, you know, as you're getting older and uh, you're starting to notice your hair thinning, there are certain supplements that are, are actually made just for your hair, skin, and nails. Um, so focusing on one of those, there's one called Nutrafol, which is specifically for your hair. You know, we have one for the hair, skin, and nails that supports your collagen. Uh, but, if, but if you want to simplify it, just taking a good multivitamin is super important. Taking a probiotic every day to help support the microbiome. I do recommend getting uh, taking good uh, omega-3 fatty acids, so fish oil. Um, so that I recommend too for its anti-inflammatory effects. I think it really helps reduce inflammation of the skin. I also recommend uh, supplemental collagen, hydrolyzed collagen. This is super popular right now. Uh, It's funny because traditional physicians say, oh, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. You take it and your your stomach acids break it down and it's not going to make your collagen any better. But there are a number of studies, albeit not huge studies, smaller studies, that do appear to show that it helps. And I can't tell you, Gabby, how many people I hear from on social media that say, you know, I tried taking a collagen supplement and my joints felt better. My hair got thicker. My nails stopped cracking so much. You know, so many of these types of stories, you know, it's the same thing you hear when, when people go off gluten, you know, not everybody is celiac, not everybody's gluten sensitive, but there's so many people that you say, Hey, look, just go two or three weeks off of gluten. Just see how you feel. And there's so many people that, they see these changes that are profound for some of them.
1: I love how you talk about the polyphenols and green tea, yep. and um, you know, just reminding people you can drink bone broth as well if mm-hmm. if you want. Okay, misnomers because we, we women we're, we we'll go for it, right? Like we're having a we're tired. Something comes on the screen. Buy it now, you'll feel better. You'll look twenty years. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've all been hooked on that one. Um, what? what can't you really absorb through your skin? I mean, what would be better to really take orally that would be better to support that it's sort of a maybe yeah. you really can't absorb it?
2: Well, I think the number one thing is collagen. You know, so there are people who will put collagen creams on their skin and the collagen molecule is too big. It's not gonna absorb through your skin. So collagen is something best taken through a hydrolyzed collagen supplement, ideally one that is very high quality because there's ones out there that aren't so good. Um, So be very choosy with that. Um, Other than that, you know, there are some great creams that you can put like hyaluronic acid. I think that's great. But, you know, really your skin is a barrier. It's meant to be a barrier. And anything that truly gets through your skin when you apply it usually is some type of an actual medication. Okay. And that's why like Retin-A works so well for people because it actually will get through your skin. That's why, you know, the sunscreens, like those chemical sunscreens, they are regulated by the FDA. You know, you can't just as a, you know, as a, a mom and pop, you know, start your own sunscreen and sell it. Like they actually do regulate that type of stuff.
1: I think, um, you know, we, we think we can sort of have the alcohol and then we can fix it with a cream. And it's just trying to remind people that there's certainly treatments, like you talked about a ton of them, that do give you a boost. Mm-hmm. Listen, there absolutely, people could come and see you and, and get a boost. I, I'm curious really quickly how you, your wife is also a doctor, is this right?
2: She's a pediatrician, yeah.
1: Yeah, how do you guys, how do you do that? How do you have children and practices and pump out tons of content and see patients? And do you have things that you do to stay You know, a practice in place for balance? Yeah,
2: I mean, I try to. You know, for me, what's going on now is I'm nearing my fifth decade now, which is like crazy when I think about it that I'm not the young doctor anymore. You know, a lot of it really is that my hobby has become creating this type of content to help people. What happened, Gabby, is that um, I used to do a lot of national TV. I've been on Rachel Ray Show like 25 times and stuff like that. And then the pandemic hit and my office closed for two and a half months. And I had friends of mine who were on the front lines of dealing with COVID and in the ER and in the OR and stuff like that. And, I, and, and being a plastic surgeon, there really wasn't much that I could do. And so I started thinking about what can I do to contribute, to help people? And so I just started creating stuff that, I, that was entertaining and, and funny at times and, and informative and people just kind of reacted to it. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, now I think I've got an audience almost like nine million that are following me on these social media channels. And a lot of it that I hear is that you know what? When I was scared and I was at home by myself and quarantined, you help keep me company. And you know, and I can treat 40 people in my office in a day, or I can help millions a day via social media podcast. YouTube and all that type of thing. And, and it really just has been a blessing to be able to affect people's lives in the way that I have. Um, I mean, I would have never thought that, that it would get to where it is now. But I do feel a bit of um, uh, a responsibility uh, as a physician you know, that I want to make sure the information I put is out there. And for me, it's all about positivity. And, and there's so much negativity in our society right now. There's just so much division. And it's trying to put positivity out there because it's just a tough time for all of
1: us. Now, you and your wife, you're both, you know, work in the medical areas and you know a lot. How do you not nag your children or allow them just to make their, you know, because I even had a thing with one of my daughters the other day. She wanted to eat, say she wanted to eat a fast food. I had just finished reading an article about them using, you know, vegetable oil and canola oil and all the waste. How could they monetize the waste, right? And how this whole thing, some of this stuff started and how we moved away from like, you know, beef tallow and all these things. And then I realized sometimes it's like you model and you make, you let your kids make their own mistakes in a certain way, as long as it doesn't have, you know, forever long lasting impact. How do you guys? you know, navigate that because you do know a lot. I think
2: that there's balance there and I would not tell you that I'm perfect. You know, I try to encourage people to improve, you know, their diet and their overall health, but we're by no means perfect ourselves. When I go to LA, which is quite often, we cannot not stop in an in and out. Now we only do it once. <laughs> that's, okay. every East,
1: that's every East coaster.
2: <laughs> but I think, you know, I think that's living life, you know, and yes, if your diet consists mainly of that stuff, you're going to probably die right. younger than you would and you're going to have more wrinkles and, and bad skin and stuff. But I think you also have to look at it as life is a journey. And, and there are certain things that you can do with your family that you can enjoy. Now, one of the things that we, we do is we do let my kids make a, you know, they, they eat a pretty darn clean diet, but they know now because they eat so clean that those things that they want Like my son, we always get small ice cream. If we give him ice cream, it's always a small size. And one, this past summer, he said, Daddy, we've been quarantined. This is our first trip out anywhere. I want to get a medium-sized ice cream cone. So I said, you know what, Daniel? You have that medium-sized ice cream cone. He finished that, and he had such a stomachache afterwards. He's like, I felt so terrible. And even now, his friends want to go get pizza, and his favorite thing are Poke Bowls. He's oh, yeah. a teenager. He's a sophomore in high school in the Midwest, in Detroit, and he's convinced his friends to go get Poke Bowls with him instead of going to get hot dogs and burgers and, and fried chicken and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think that that's the thing. It's the modeling and then the faith that your kids are going to be able to feel the difference themselves. Yeah. And and it's like we do have to build our own reasons why we do or don't do things, but it's just tricky. And I'm, I've re- I always just am curious about people like you with your wife and your family, how you have these big lives and just how you how you manage it. So, what is it that you do you think from your parents, from your Korean culture that I mean we mentioned we mentioned the fermented foods, but is there sort of anything that you have seen that you've woven into your practice that shows up from, you know, from something you've learned from that from your your culture with your folks?
2: You know, I think that part of it, you know, is the reason why I've done a lot of what I have done. Um, And here I am, it's like, it'd be nice to live a life where you just go to work nine to five, you come home and then you don't worry about work anymore. But I'm constantly striving to improve myself and to improve my, where I'm at. And I think part of it is growing up as a skinny Asian kid in the middle of white America, feeling different and not having any girls interested in me until after I graduated college, pretty much that it, I think I've got a little chip on my shoulder that I always feel I have to prove myself and make my parents proud of me. And, and so I don't know, I think that that's always been something with me. It's never been something like I'm angry or I'm bitter or anything, but I, but I, I always feel driven to try to improve who I am and to try to impact people as much as I can, because I feel like so much has been given to me that, you know, so I have a responsibility to somehow give that back as well.
1: You know, being in the, in the fitness space, you know, both my husband and I, and then as you, you know, as you do get older, you think, Oh, do I, am I going to, I, do I look the part? Even mm-hmm. if the practice is authentic, you know, you have, uh, self-destructive thoughts yeah, or yeah. whatever, because you are very youthful and, um, but that you're in the business of youth and smooth and all these things. Does it ever play tricks with you yourself that you're like, Oh, I'm getting older.
2: It definitely does. And that's something my, if you ask my wife, she said, you're you're in the middle of like uh, almost a lifelong midlife crisis. <laughs> you know, it used to be that I was a young surgeon and now it's like people say, oh, you look young for your age. And we all know as we get older that that's not really a compliment because essentially they're saying you're old. Now I've got all these followers on TikTok. That's crazy. I got all these teenagers that follow me. Uh, and, and on TikTok, when they comment, you can actually prevent certain comments from showing up. And the comment that I have that I have prevented from showing up on my page is boomer. Now I'm not a boomer, I'm Gen X, like yourself, you know. Boomer is somebody who's much older than me, but these kids don't know, uh, but they look at me as a boomer, but at the same time, I refuse to accept that. So, you know, it's tough getting older and I sympathize with my patients. And just because you look young for your age still means that you're still getting older. And, and it is something that gets hard to deal with sometimes, you know, what can you do? I think it's like I said, life is a journey. At some point, you're going to get to the end of it. And you want to look back and feel like the time that you spent here was well worthwhile and that you left the earth better with you being there than with you not being there.
1: That's right. And I, I think it's that the whole thing of you're contributing. And really, I think that's better than any perfect skin. And But you just have to keep focusing. And then when you have those those down moments, you can say to somebody like, oh, you know, I was dealing with wrestling with that side of my ego or my fears or whatever. And then, you know, just keep moving. Okay. So I have one last question, maybe the most um, constructive way to uh, approach fillers and maybe ones that you you would have a little more wiggle room with?
2: Yeah. So this is really interesting because, you know, back in 2004, I was in Beverly Hills with a top named plastic surgeon out there, a guy named Dr. Richard Ellenbogen. And then, and together we wrote a paper that was seminal in the plastic surgery literature called the volumetric or three-dimensional facelift. And it was this idea that aging, there are face ages, not in two dimensions where we sag, but we also lose volume. And so part of that was adding volume back in. And I, was, and I heard from a lot of plastic surgeons afterwards, like, you know, this is such a great idea. And so at the time, there really weren't many fillers, so we would inject fat and, and that worked really well. Well, now the injectable fillers come along and then you take what essentially is a really good idea is adding volume to rejuvenate the face and you do what plastic surgeons do is you overdo it. So if a little is good, then more is better, right? Wrong, more could be a lot <laughs> worse And now you got this epidemic of pillow faces that you're seeing all over the country. And so really what it is, is that injecting filler can be, is a very, very powerful instrument that can create great changes if you do it subtly and conservatively. You know, people know about injecting your lips. Our lips get thinner as we age. That's one part of it. But it's the cheeks that really get people. And the cheeks lose volume as we get older. To use a little bit of filler in the cheeks can be great. And if you do it subtly, one syringe maybe on each side, maybe a syringe and a half, it can be very rejuvenative. But when you're injecting three or four syringes on each side, now you're just deforming the face and you're changing how it looks. And you're once again, now you're breaking that rule. If you're not helping make somebody look better, you're just making them look different. Yeah. So I wouldn't be afraid of fillers, but just make sure you do it you know conservatively. And you can always do a small amount then come back for more versus signing on to do a ton all at once.
1: And what what for the lip doesn't get that weird hard look? What what filler or product does that?
2: So it's two things: it's the product and it's the placement. So traditionally, we inject filler into what's called a vermilion border, and that's the that's where you have the color line of the upper and lower lip. Some people like that. You know, you have a, a celebrity like Lady Gaga, who I love, Lady Gaga. I, it's not confirmed that she's had fillers. I think she may have admitted at some point, but her, her lips are nice and outlined. And to me, it looks like she's had filler, which looks great. But then there's some other people where it's so outlined and it looks stiff and unnatural that if you overdo it, they can do that. Plus there are certain fillers that just aren't made for the lips. If you inject it there, it's gonna cause that. So how do you do it? How do you do it right? You inject less amounts of it. You inject a softer filler. There are fillers specifically made for the lips like Rustling Kiss, Rustling Silk. Uh, Juvederum Valbella. These are soft fillers that aren't as apt to create that kind of that uh that thick, uh stiff look.
1: Yeah, the duck look. If uh someone was curious about sort of some of your like you think that you guys have created products that you go, these are some of our hero products for you at your brand. Uh, which ones would you say, hey, we're, we're getting this one right? Like we've really, even if it's an ingestible, whatever it is, if, if you could just share that.
2: Yeah, the two ones that are most popular, we have a retinol moisture. So I have a skincare line called Youn Beauty, and it's made with natural and organic ingredients. Um we've got a retinol moisturizer. And I mentioned earlier how retinoids are kind of the number one anti-aging cream. Um, So that you use every night. And then we have a CE antioxidant serum. So this is serum that you apply in the morning after you cleanse, but before you apply any type of a sunscreen. Uh, Combines vitamin C and vitamin E, which we do know when you combine the two, you get a synergistic effect of its antioxidants. And so these are are the two top sellers, my two favorites. Um, And if you're looking for a good skincare routine, adding those to just cleansing and a sunscreen, a lot of times that's all you really need. And you want people to avoid bar soap. (laughs) No bar soap on your face. You do want to use a facial cleanser appropriate for your skin. Very simple rule is if you've got dry skin, use a gentle cleanser, one that's not too aggressive. If you've got oily skin, use a foaming cleanser. That's going to make your skin feel cleaner. And if after you cleanse your skin, you give it two minutes and your skin feels tight then it's it's too aggressive
1: well i uh, i appreciate the work that you're doing and um i will maybe you can just remind everybody every place that they can find you now because you have been uh you've been busy yeah
2: so i have a podcast called the holistic plastic surgery show Uh, you can find wherever you find podcasts i'm also uh, i've got a youtube channel i'm on tiktok and instagram you look for me you'll be able to find me pretty easily
1: thank you so much doc
2: thank you so much gabby
1: Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the the behind-the-scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every
0: Monday. Seeking the truth
2: never gets old.